Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. It's a really good question for any person to ask themselves and to ask their neighbors. Is the investment one that could potentially help us make some progress on some of the other issues that the city is facing? Welcome to the Best New Ideas in Money, a podcast from MarketWatch. I'm Stephanie Kelton. I'm an economist and a professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University. And I'm Charles Passy, a reporter at MarketWatch. Each week, we explore innovations in economics, finance, technology, and policy that rethink the way we live, work, spend, save, and invest. This week's episode comes from a question we got from a listener. My name's Sonny Aslam. I live outside of Syracuse, New York. Sonny Aslam's question centers around a proposal to build a new aquarium in Syracuse, one that will cost $85 million. This morning, County Executive Ryan McMahon announced plans for a new aquarium that will be located right here at Inner Harbor. Spending public money on developments is a big investment, or a big gamble, depending on the person you ask. Construction will cost $85 million, but McMahon says the project will help generate $50 million in economic activity while also creating hundreds of construction and permanent jobs. Syracuse has high levels of poverty, more than twice as high as the national average. The question on Sonny's mind was, how can a public investment like this be justified? So this was $85 million proposed for an aquarium. And what was released was a feasibility report that really, if you look at it, it looks more like a marketing and advertising campaign. I think one of the biggest concerns about the process locally is that it seems to be done without really any public input. I would like there to be a robust discussion and with an objective analysis from you know, both sides of the argument so then people could decide. How should we evaluate whether these projects will pay off? Can they keep their promises and deliver what they say they will? How do we prioritize what our community needs? How do we make sure public investments deliver on the promises they make to the people who fund them? What concerns should we raise when we consider new developments like this? I see a real dynamic tension between the way that local government very frequently can become the champion of high-budget, kind of single location projects as being the sort of silver bullet solution to whatever challenges the city is facing. That's Philip Wynn. He's the director of Parks and Place at the San Francisco Parks Alliance. The main focus of my career and my work has been parks, plazas, squares, greenways, waterfronts, and the kinds of places that are you know, shared by everyone and really work around How do we center the voice of the community in public projects? Wynne says few public projects start out the same way, and ideally the community voice can be incorporated from the very beginning. We can see them floated up through the ecosystem of civic advocacy. Most of our cities have pretty well-established groups of many different stripes that are working on 
cross-cutting issues or on single-issue advocacy. So those groups are constantly working on ideas and proposals and policy around what they want to see. And if they're lucky to get in the ear of an influential elected official, then you know they could turn one of those ideas into something that gets championed by that elected official. In my experience, these ideas are often in the air for a long amount of time. And it's really that process of building community support and political support and then community will and political will to get them to a place where they can be implemented. Of course, determining the economic impact is an important part of the process. They hire folks like me to make those kinds of forecasts. Frank Lenk is Director of Research Services for the Mid-America Regional Council in Kansas City, Missouri. Part of his job is just what Sonny was looking for, figuring out whether projects like the Syracuse Aquarium will contribute to the economic growth of his region. Lenk says there are good and bad ways to run these types of studies. The main issue is to look at the net impact, not the gross. Is the project bringing in new money from outside, or is it just moving money around that already exists within the community? The practitioner's work is to figure out where is the money coming from that's funding this project. Insofar as it's coming from local citizens, then it's sort of a wash. They could be spending the money on something else. But if there really is an attraction that brings new visitors into the region, well, that's money the region wouldn't have had already. And so we count that as part of the economic benefit. So for an aquarium or a sports stadium, you know, how much of the money is just local fans spending it on that entertainment venue instead of some other entertainment venue? That's sort of a wash. Link says there are other ways to measure the return on a project beyond net profit. How much do people value this activity? And where people put their money is an important way to measure that. So you can look at recreational sports. That's not really net new money coming to the community, but there's a lot of money that goes into recreational sports because people value it. I think too much is made of the economic impact analysis itself. A major development has a lot of hoops to jump through, even after it passes the hurdle of its feasibility study. Coming up, how do these projects go from idea to reality? The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. With models at every point on the price-performance curve, you no longer have to make trade-offs between intelligence, speed, and cost. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Haiku is the fastest and lowest-cost model on the market, perfectly designed for high-volume, high-speed use cases. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to keep them at the frontier. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Welcome back to the best new ideas in money. Before the break, we heard about the kinds of things urban planners study when looking at publicly funded projects, which sometimes have major private interests. We're considering this question just as New York State approved spending $850 million to build the new $1.4 billion Buffalo Bills Stadium. That's the biggest public contribution ever for an NFL facility. Sports team owners really like to put forward the idea that public money going into stadiums 
is a public benefit in some way. Neil DeMoss is co-author of the book Field of Schemes. He investigates the kind of economic and political controversies that can be involved with building sports stadiums. He says the promises these kinds of projects make are often unfulfilled, at least from an economic standpoint. You know, at this point, as a journalist, I've been researching this for more than 20 years and talking to economists who've investigated this, and nobody can find any significant impact that comes from these deals. You might get a little bit of moving money around from one part of a city to another, a little bit of, uh, you know, sports bars opening up across the street. But the amount of new development, new tax revenue, any of that is minuscule compared to the amount of public money that's going into these things. So, you know, when you're talking about 300, 500, 700 million dollars in public money, there's just absolutely no way that you're ever going to earn that back. DeMoss thinks that in the final analysis when it comes to stadiums, the city that wins the project might not be the city that wins in the end. Take the Tampa Bay Rays. Their owner, Stu Sternberg, has been looking to get a new stadium for years and years now and has been sort of trying to play off both Tampa and St. Petersburg against each other to try and see who would give him the most money. And I think a lot of people feel like the winner would be whoever loses out in that, right? Because if you end up winning the right to host the team, you're the one stuck with hundreds of millions of dollars of bills to build the stadium, whereas the people across the bay have to drive across a bridge, but at least they don't have to pay taxes to go and see the the games. Here in New York State, the money for the Buffalo Bills' new home would be the largest ever subsidy for an NFL stadium. New York State has approved a $600 million contribution, and the local county will put in another $250 million once the project is fully approved. The rest of the money would come from private investment. Here's New York Governor Kathy Hochul at a press conference about the project. This is a major project for us. It also is going to generate revenue and also goes to our identity. We are known globally for being the home of the Buffalo Bills, and it's part of our local psyche, and it makes us so proud, and it directs tourism. And it's, again, part of our identity. Here's Neil DeMoss again. The governor of New York has been making these arguments that spending a billion dollars on a new Buffalo Bill Stadium is going to pay for itself. It's a strange argument because the numbers that the state has come up with in terms of what they would get back in terms of, you know, new tax money from, you know, player income taxes and things like that is like about $27 million a year, which is not nearly enough to pay off a billion dollars in stadium expenses. On top of that, you have to question whether you're really going to get $27 million a year in new money when you're just moving the bills a few hundred feet from one stadium to another one next door. You know, a lot of economists have looked at and have said that most of the money that gets spent on sports is substituted from something else, right? So if the bills weren't there, then people would spend more money on the Sabres or people would spend more money going to movies or going to restaurants or something else. DeMoss says if you're going to make a massive stadium investment, putting it in a city center makes the most sense. I think that downtown stadiums are probably better than suburban stadiums for a bunch of reasons. It keeps the money in the city. It's usually more accessible, right? You've got 
team owner is sort of looking around saying, hey, this neighborhood seems like it's really got some potential and starting to get some interest and, you know, we've got some new businesses going in there. This would be a great place for us to build a stadium. And then you win both ways, right? First of all, you get the benefit of sort of getting in on the ground floor of this neighborhood that's really starting to take off. And then also you get to take credit for any of the development that happens afterwards by saying, hey, that was us. You know, <laughs> without that stadium, none of it would have happened. But in most cases, it started before that. Different considerations come into play when weighing the benefits of cultural projects like museums and concert halls. Historically, these projects have been shown to revive neighborhoods or even entire cities. Lincoln Center was kind of seen as this pilot project in terms of using public funds and in, in their case also urban renewal and clearance to invest in cultural institutions. Elizabeth Strom is an associate professor in the School of Public Affairs at the University of South Florida. She's written about the history of Lincoln Center, the famous New York City arts complex which houses opera, symphony, theater, and ballet. It first opened in 1962. The bigger picture idea was that American cities, especially central cities, were losing out to suburbs in some of their previous functions. They were no longer the place where you went to shop. They were no longer the place where all the offices were concentrated. Thanks to white flight, middle class families were moving out. And so I think that those invested in cities started to wonder, well, where do we have some kind of comparative advantage? And realizing that people still relied on cities for culture. And so I think the idea was, here's something where we can attract people to the city, give it some vibrancy, catalyze economic development around something where cities already have a reputation and are known for being really good at this. Lincoln Center has been held up as a success story for decades, but Strom says it's a model that doesn't easily translate. New York has been seen as a cultural capital for a very long time. The tenant companies at Lincoln Center are well-known, sort of the world's best in their areas, you know, uh, American Ballet and City Ballet, the uh, Metropolitan Opera. And so it got a lot of attention for that. I would say that to some extent, it, it is and isn't a model. Just about every time I read about a city that was trying to spend money to build a performing arts center, there'd always be some reference to Lincoln Center and some reference to some economic impact study that showed it was you know, basically supporting the whole city economy and why not replicate that? But wasn't in the sense that not every city is New York. While Lincoln Center did support the city's economy, Strom says it wasn't without sacrifice. It was built using the practice of so-called slum clearing, basically removing low-income homes and businesses. Back in the 1950s, there was protest against urban renewal, that especially Puerto Rican New Yorkers protested it. It was a very local kind of protest, marginalized people. So it simply didn't resonate. And by the time Lincoln Center was built, it was long forgotten. But there were always protests against that kind of urban renewal activity. And in part, thanks to the protests throughout the 1960s, that way of doing urban renewal really died out. The success of a cultural institution is often measured by factors beyond the volume of tourists it attracts and the net profits. 
investment in something like a museum is really different for a city than giving money for a baseball stadium. A baseball stadium is going to cost you half a billion dollars and some rich person is going to reap the profits. A museum is a community asset and so subsidizing it doesn't seem to me as big of a leap and subsidizing it and at the end saying you know what it didn't have the economic impact we thought it would have but we have kindergarten classes going through there every year and learning about art then that it seems to me if I'm a city decision maker I'm okay with that outcome. Of course a lot of baseball fans would disagree. Recently Strom sees a new trend in urban cultural planning. I've been moving to doing more work on cultural festivals and also street art murals. It's not that cities are no longer investing in these sort of big ticket items, but they're putting more of their attention on more experiential sort of things. A lot of the tourism literature is talking about people wanting to have like authentic experiences when they travel and that that also affecting where younger professionals want to live. And so I feel like there's been sort of a generational shift from uh, let's build the big building to let's have more smaller venues, more integrated into the fabric of the community and sort of have the experience of art be something that's more something that's done collectively in public. So, Stephanie, let's go back to Sonny Aslam's question. Should we proceed with these projects? Should we think about new ways to evaluate them in advance? It's a very confusing question. Yeah, it is. And it's why cities and states are so dependent on people like Frank Lank, you know, the the people who can do the sort of economic impact studies that try to help lawmakers figure out whether these projects are a good use of public money. You know, they're going to be winners and they're going to be losers. And at the end of the day, you're trying to figure out whether on balance, the community is well served by approving projects like the kinds that we've been talking about. You know, a lot of these projects, too, it strikes me. I mean, they have some very good and noble goals. It does seem to me that there are some positives. On the other hand, you know, when we look at some of these projects, we also have to think about some of the negatives. I mean, what looms in my mind in particular is gentrification and how some of these projects can transform neighborhoods, but often at the expense of locals. Yeah, that's where the winners and losers come in. And you have to be aware of the impacts on the broader community. It You know, you develop an area that raises property values and brings in tourists and that sort of thing. Well, you need workers to work in those restaurants, but you also want, I think, to have a community that affords those workers an opportunity to live close to the places they work so that they can be part of the community as well. And too often they get priced out of housing and they end up having to travel very long distances to commute to work, to work in the restaurants and hotels in some of these very high-end places, and then they can't afford to live anywhere near them. I think it's important to remember, though, with all these projects, there's inevitably a public review process. And I think it's important to always be willing to speak out if you support a project, if you're against it. And we shouldn't feel like we're just relying on what legislators and developers want to see and envision for our cities. Philip Wynn from the San Francisco Parks Alliance says that this dialogue between communities and their representatives is an essential part of developing public projects that really do make a difference. 
it's a really good question for any person to ask themselves and to ask their neighbors when we're looking at these investments is to say, is the investment one that could potentially help us make some progress on some of the other issues that the city is facing? And I think if we're able to support that kind of a conversation between community members and local government, I think there's almost always in a good process the ability to make any idea richer and more multifaceted and to make the investment then feel more relevant to the largest amount of people. Thanks for listening to the best new ideas in money. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a review. As you probably know, it's the best way for other listeners to discover us. If you have ideas for future episodes or a great book you'd like us to discuss, drop us a line or send us a voicemail at bestnewideasinmoney at marketwatch.com. Thanks to Sunny Aslam, Philip Wynn, Frank Lank, Neil DeMoss, and Elizabeth Strong. To learn more about public project financing, head to marketwatch.com. I'm Stephanie Kelton. And I'm Charles Passy. The Best New Ideas in Money is a podcast for MarketWatch produced by Best Case Studios. Suzanne Myers is our producer. Our associate producer is Hannah Leibowitz-Lockhart. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pickus. For MarketWatch, Melissa Haggerty is the executive producer and the associate producer is Katie Ferguson. Jeremy Binks is our news editor. This episode was mixed by Katie Ferguson. The Best New Ideas in Money theme was composed by Sam Retzer. Stephanie Kelton is an economist and professor of economics and public policy at Stony Brook University and not part of the MarketWatch newsroom. We'll be back next week with another new idea. The Claude 3 model family by Anthropic is your one-stop shop for enterprise AI. Haiku is lightning fast and cost-effective. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between skills and speed. And Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Learn more at anthropic.com slash Claude.